Hello and welcome to episode 408 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Ben Olson. With me is Nathan Fox. We're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. If you want to be LSAT famous, you can share news and ask questions on our website. That's thinkinglsat.com. We have a free class coming up. I'll be teaching it. That's on Monday, July 10th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. I will be doing reading comp. You can sign up for that at lsat.link forward slash slash forward slash forward slash Ben. Yeah, it's free. All you need is a demon free account. Come and learn how we do reading comp here at the demon, which I think is exponentially superior to other approaches that we've seen out there. But come judge for yourself. Cool. Yeah, so let's let's jump in here. Abigail, uh, team member Abigail, sent in several ask button questions where students had misidentified the conclusion in a logical reasoning passage. So I think what we're going to go ahead and do here is we're going to go ahead and do this first question. We have two questions. We'll do the first one. And then, so you understand what's going on in this question, you can hear how we would answer it. And then we'll go ahead and read the student's question and see if we can add some clarification and then do the same thing for the next question. Should point out that these uh, questions are freely available if you have an LSAT Demon free account and uh, full written explanations, video explanations, all kinds of good stuff uh, that you can work on. I, I would say that I think you can probably study productively for at least a couple of weeks just using the resources that are already available for free. So sure. no excuses, right, for people not to start getting a foothold on this test. Uh, please exploit us for our free resources. We think they're good enough that you'll eventually want to sign up, but there's, it's meant to be enough to like make actual real progress. Absolutely. So I mean, you can make a lot of progress from one question and there are what, at least 300 in there. So well, I've said for a long time on the podcast that if you were stuck on a desert Island somewhere and you had just one LSAT with you, you know, any test yeah. prep yep. test one through 92 or whatever it is, 93. Um, <laughs> if you had one prep test and you had to like really study it like the sacred scrolls kind of a thing that by the time you, you know, a year later, they take you off the desert Island and you would actually potentially be mass have mastery of the LSAT because you just really understood those questions. I'm not talking about note taking. I'm not talking about like creating strategies for yourself or anything really i'm just talking about reading each one of those 100 questions carefully enough and the you know really understanding why the right answers are right and why the wrong answers are wrong well we've got what is it there's like 300 questions or something like that that are available for free um yep. it's the most we can share with you for free yep and you definitely there's enough there to like get better at the test. Probably not enough there to do a full prep, but there's enough there to make progress. So please do that. How do they sign up for that again? LSATdemon.com and just click on start and you can do a free account. Cool. All right, let's dive into this question. I'll read it to you and uh, see what you think of it. Yeah. So pre this is a test 73, section two, question 10. An actor says, Bertolt Brecht's plays are not genuinely successful dramas. Okay. That sounds like the actors 
conclusion. Speaking of conclusions, I have no idea at this point for sure, of course. I don't know where the actor is going to go with this, but saying that someone's plays are not genuinely successful dramas sounds like something that's a little provocative and that they're going to then back up with reasons, right? I'm like, oh, yeah. why, why don't you think they're successful? That could be a premise, you know, but... It, oh, totally. Right. It, I yeah, agree with it you that... shift. <laughs> because it's it's fighting words, you know? It's like, whoa, hey. you're, attacking, you're attacking this Bertolt Brecht and saying that he's, he does not have genuinely successful dramas. It invites questions, right? What do you mean they're not successful dramas? Yeah, and why? How do you why define do you a successful drama? Tell me about Bertolt Brecht's plays. Tell me how those plays do not meet the, cat, the, the criteria that you set out. I can predict all of that from that first sentence. That's not where they have to go. But if they do go there, I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I got it. Yeah, and we've seen... Also, a hundred times where they say something like this and then immediately say, therefore, <laughs> you shouldn't hire him. Right. Right. And it's like, oh, OK, I guess I don't know why he's not genuinely successful, but. Right. Whatever. That was you. I have to accept that as a given and then decide whether or not that proves right. what you then went on to try to prove. But. Right. Yeah. Okay. And cool. And instead, it goes a different direction. It says the roles in Brex plays express such incongruous motives and beliefs that audiences as well as the actors playing the roles invariably find it difficult at best to discern any of the characters personalities those two aren't really that related to each other then the last sentence though says but for a play to succeed as a drama audiences must care what happens to at least some of its characters okay we still have some gaps here but what I heard in the first premise was that, hey, the plays are essentially a little confusing, right? Like I, I'm oversimplifying this, but they're confusing. And then that makes it hard for people to figure out what personalities the characters actually have, even the actors, which is crazy. But then it's like, oh, how does that relate to being a successful drama? Well, to be a successful drama, you have to care what happens to at least some of its characters. Uh, if you can't discern the characters' personalities, does that mean that you're not going to care about what happens to some of them? There seems to be a little bit of a disconnect there, a little bit of a jump, but I can see that that's what the actor is assuming, right? The actor is assuming that, hey, if you can't discern the personalities, you're not going to care about them, and therefore if you don't care about them, the play isn't going to succeed as a drama. Yeah. And OK, so before we look at the question, we would look at that as a whole argument. What was the conclusion of the argument? The conclusion was the first sentence. Right. As anticipated, because they said something that sounded a little bit controversial and we went, oh, I wonder if you're going to support that. And they did try to support that. So the first sentence is the conclusion. Everything else is the evidence. And we knew that before we ever read the question. The question then turns out to say the conclusion of the actor's argument can be properly drawn if which one of the following is assumed. So now what are you thinking? Oh, OK, well, that's a sufficient assumption question. So it means they're asking me to find an answer that if it were true, if it were added to the argument as a premise, would then guarantee that the conclusion is true. That first sentence, you might think of it as a super strengthener that a sufficient assumption is the world's best strengthener where it's like, well, 
if this is true, then I just win. Yep. Okay. It, it would force us to believe that Bertolt Brecht's plays are not successful, not genuinely successful dramas. It's really important to stop here and predict an answer. So why don't you walk through how you're going to do that? Well, uh, for starters, I already identified a jump in the reasoning, right? Like it said, oh, we can't discern the character's personalities and then said, but to be successful, the audience has to care about some of the characters. Those two things aren't the right. same thing. I might not be able to discern someone's personality, but still care about them. I really, I just don't know. I guess this person is assuming that if you want to care about someone, you have to be able to discern their personalities. Since that is a problem in this argument, it has to be fixed if we're going to justify or make the conclusion properly drawn. So I'm 99.9% .9 sure that the correct answer is going to fix that problem. It may try to fix some other problem that I haven't seen, but that for sure must be in the answer. Yeah, you're not allowed to bring up new shit in the conclusion of your argument. OK, and Bertolt Brecht, even though it, were the, it was the first two words of the actor's argument, Bertolt Brecht was mentioned only in the conclusion of this argument, never in the premises. We have a premise about what it takes to be a successful drama. And we have a conclusion that says Bertolt Brecht's plays are not successful dramas. Well, we need we oh, sorry, we do have evidence about the roles in Bertolt Brecht's plays. My bad. So that's not actually new shit in the conclusion. Mm -hmm. But we don't we know we know that the roles make it hard to discern the personalities. Mm -hmm. And then, the yeah, the gap is actually not from the conclusion. My bad. The, the, the gap is between those two premises. Right. Which is, well, we know that Brecht can't discern. We can't discern the characters personalities, but can we still care? Like, what if I have loving kindness for all of human, all of humanity? Yeah, no matter what, no matter how confusing they are. Right. I, what people? if I have yeah. achieved true Zen mastery and I'm able to just, you know, love my enemies? Or yeah. Pe pe but this is a step beyond that. It's like people I just don't even, I can't understand, don't know anything about them, but maybe I can still care about them. Yeah. Okay. That's the bridge that needs building. A. An audience that cannot readily discern a character's personality will not take any interest in that character. Okay. If you don't take, <laughs> we know that um, the actors and, and the audience cannot discern any of the character's personalities in this guy's plays. And this is saying, oh, okay. When you can't do that, you're not going to take any interest yeah. in that character, which means... To me, you're not going to care about them. And if you're not going to care about them, then according to this last sentence, the play is not going to succeed. So that that seems to justify the conclusion. I yeah. would definitely keep that open. Yeah, I, I would not only keep it open, but I would be like, that's going to be the answer. Ninety nine percent of the time it does what I predicted, you know, unless I see another answer that seems like it does exactly that. I'm just not going to have much patience for these wrong answers. So B. A character's personality is determined primarily by the motives and beliefs of that character. This seems to be like almost trying to double down on the first premise or something. It still doesn't fix the gap between the first premise and the second premise. So yeah. it's wrong. The response, like in kind of if we were going to do a back and forth, if someone says, A, my response is, so what? 
I already know that these characters are weird. Yeah. I want to know if that means that the audience is not going to care about the character. And if B is not about the audience caring about the character, you know, then that just can't possibly be the answer. C, the extent to which a play succeeds as a drama is directly proportional to the extent to which the play's audiences care about its characters. Okay, this is again, it's like trying to reinforce the second premise as opposed to really connecting the filling in that that jump in reasoning. Yeah, I already know that for a play to succeed as a drama, audiences have to care what happens to at least some of its characters. All C does is say, well, yeah, the more you know about the characters, the more successful you're going to be. Yeah, yeah, but I already have. If you don't care about the characters, then you're not successful. And I'm trying to prove that Bertolt Brecht is not successful. Mm hmm. That is, by mm -hmm. the way, the uh, by far the most commonly chosen wrong answer. My guess yeah. is that maybe there, yeah, people are misidentifying the conclusion of the argument and they're trying to build a different bridge. They're almost trying to justify the last sentence. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, see if true does seem like it would be used as evidence for the last sentence of the argument. But the, mm -hmm. the problem with that is that we don't need to prop up premises. We already have that premise. We can already use that to disqualify Bertolt Brecht's plays as long as we know that the audiences are not going to care about Brecht's characters, yeah. which is the missing piece, which is what we predicted, which is why A is going to be the answer. Okay, D and E just quickly. D, if the personalities of a play's characters are not readily discernible by the actors playing the roles, which... I wanted to stop reading it there, but it did acknowledge that the actors playing the roles also have a hard time. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. If they're not readily discernible, then those personalities are not readily discernible by the play's audience. Which, again, we already knew. <laughs> yep. We already knew that the audience can't tell what's going on with these Brecht characters. So that does nothing. E all plays that unlike Brecht's plays have characters with whom audiences empathize succeed as dramas. This is also doubling down on that last premise. It's, it's not, it's a, it's a confusing, sufficient for necessary, but it's, it's like trying to reinforce this idea, right? This, this connection between yeah. understanding or caring about the characters and then succeeding as a drama. So all the wrong answers are really just, reinforcing on some level the premises. Yeah. And you know who's most likely to fall into those traps, unfortunately, is mm. I think the the people who diagram, because mm. when you start diagramming, it's just real easy to think like you lose sense of what the statements were even saying sometimes. And yeah. you start it's just like you start drawing arrows all over the page and hieroglyphics everywhere. And the next thing you know, it's like, well, yeah, because that links those two terms. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't understand the argument in the first place. Like you wasted all this time mm -hmm. only so that you could end up falling into one of these traps because it does look like B, C, D, E. It's kind of like they're throwing all these relevant terms at you. And yeah. it's just like, looks like it's kind of on the right track. But there's one of those answers that proves the conclusion of the argument. And that's A. If you really mastered this question, you would be miles better at sufficient assumption questions because that answer is totally predictable. Yeah. If you 
do it right. Okay, cool. Um, want to read the uh, correspondence question or the ask yeah. button question? Yeah. So the student wrote, I had a t hard time identifying the conclusion. I narrowed it down to either the first sentence or the last one. In general, if a sentence stands alone and all the other sentences, for example, claims slash premises, seem dependent on something, then is it safe to assume that the sentence that stands alone is the conclusion? Are you clear on what this correspondent means by no. stands alone? No, I don't know what you mean by stands alone. I don't know what you mean by seems dependent on something either. Yeah. So what happened here? We read the first sentence before we even read the other sentences. So it's not like we're saying, hey, this one stands alone. We just read it and we're saying, hmm, them fighting words. <laughs> right? Didn't have to be the main conclusion, but it sounded like it might be. And then the author went on to try to back it up. So we're like, okay, that's what you're trying to prove. Right. They're, they're probably, I mean, sometimes they're just giving you fact, 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 and they're not really making an argument. Mm. Other times it's clear that some of what they're saying is supporting something else that they're saying. Mm -hmm. Nothing is meant to be independent here. Nothing is meant to, or standing alone here. I mean, the, the conclusion of the argument actually is linked to another premise because of Bertolt Brecht. So there's, it's not like there's anything just wildly standing off by itself and we need to try to bridge the gap from the evidence to that conclusion. And I mean, here on this sufficient assumption question, the, the correct answer actually bridged a gap between premises. Yep. So, yeah, it's it's definitely not about standing alone. It's as Ben said, we we predicted it after the first sentence because we're like we're we're real critical. We're real skeptical. And that helps a lot. If I read, if someone says Bertolt Brecht's plays are not genuinely successful dramas, I go, oh, I wonder what Bertolt Brecht's attorney would have to say about that. Yep. Right. <laughs> like, why are you attacking my client? Now, that's not to say, as we said just a few minutes ago, that that couldn't turn around and end up being evidence for something else. But notice what your reaction might be if the sentence had something had said something like this. Bertolt Brecht's plays were performed 10 times last year. Yeah, that I'm going to go, well, okay, it seems like you could have credible evidence for that very easily. It doesn't seem like, I mean, I suppose you that fight could be over false, that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah and it, you could argue over it. You could say, and look, and my friend saw like five of them and, but probably sounds like a fact that they're then going to use to justify some other thing. Like, yeah. And where do they go from there? Right. I mean, yeah. It, given the the actual conclusion, which was Bertolt Brecht's plays are not genuinely successful dramas, or given that that was the first sentence in the next sentence, if they said, if you produce plays that are not successful dramas, then you will never become famous or something like that. Mm -hmm. Then I would go, oh, so Bertolt Brecht, not genuinely successful is meant to be a premise because then it links to that next thing, which is you won't become famous, which, you know, it's like. If I can see them it's building, building. in, a, yep. in mm -hmm. a different direction, then I'll go, oh, okay, I guess that was a premise. But no, my my presumption here would have been correct, which was you're attacking Brecht. I wonder what your evidence is like. That sounds like a matter of taste. Genuinely successful drama. I'm expecting mm -hmm. you to give me some evidence about what genuinely successful dramas 
would look like. Like if they were genuinely successful, they would have to have certain criteria that Brecht lacks. And sure enough, that's exactly where they went. All right. Should we slide over to this next one? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. You want to read the argument to me? Sure. It's a 65 section one question 10, by the way. A new process enables ordinary table salt to be fortified with iron. I just kind of shrug my shoulders and go, okay, cool. Tell me more about that. Yeah. And it, it sounds like a fact, right? Like, I'm okay. sure, yeah. No. Like I, I guess that could, con- could turn into the conclusion, you know, like uh, this new process will take the salt to a wizard's house and you know, something like that. Then I might be going, Oh, okay. But is the, is that actually going to work? Yeah. But instead, you know, when I read something that seems kind of mundane like that, I just go, yeah, okay. I don't what, you know, my, the attorney's ears are not perking up here going like, Oh, I smell a case. I don't smell any case yet. Yeah. I mean, any fact can be attacked, but a lot of facts just sound reasonable on their face and you don't expect them to be <laughs> attacked. So yeah, and the, the way that LSAT works is, you know, when they're making an argument, it's usually one conclusion and two or three premises, one or two or three or maybe four premises. And so I, I need to expect that they're going to be giving me lots of premises. Right. So I read that yeah. and I go, yeah, OK, where are you going from here? Just FYI, if you're new to all this, a premise is just a piece of evidence. Yeah. Um, OK. This advance could help reduce the high incidence of anemia in the world's population due to a deficiency of iron in the diet. Okay, so that's a little more sketchy, right? Or yeah. a little sketchier, I should say. Uh, because that's a prediction about the future. And yep. it's like, well, wait a second now. Anemia, you say? Mm-hmm. Is that like, does that... Is that way more common in the developing world than it is in the developed world? And are we really going to be able to bring this fortified table salt to wherever? You know, I I start going, well, oh, also, does putting iron in table salt actually help with anemia? Sure. Like I get it. it. Like maybe consuming iron with with table salt ruins the effect or makes it so your body can't absorb it or whatever. Yep. Okay. So I'm I'm finding some skepticism which makes me think that that might be the conclusion of the argument. Sure. Okay. Salt is used as a preservative for food and a flavor enhancer all over the globe. Okay, so that's a premise. Now I'm really thinking that second sentence is going to be the conclusion of the argument. Yeah. And we're trying, the author is trying to show us why it could reduce the high incidence of anemia. Anemia. Okay. So I I stopped mid-sentence. I don't know if you normally would, but I would stop there just because it had a comma and and I felt like we had an idea and that was it. Yeah. It's two separate sentences. They just, you know, that's one thing that they do on the LSAT to make it harder to read essentially to see if you'll win the battle of will over this test and force yourself to understand what you're reading. Most people are just going to breathlessly combine that into one sentence and not really understand what's there. Ben, an expert at the test, stops and goes, "Okay, so that's its own idea. Salt is used as a preservative for food and flavor all over the world. And that does sound like something that would support the idea that this new advance could help reduce the high incidence of anemia in the world's population due to iron deficiency. And then, okay, after the comma, what are we getting? Another premise, probably. 
Probably so. And people consume salt in quantities that would provide iron in significant amounts. Yeah. So at the end of the argument, I'm going, well, you know, it's a pretty reasonable argument. We have facts. Mm -hmm. A new process enables ordinary table salt to be fortified with iron. Salt is used all over the globe. Yep. People do all over the globe consume salt in quantities that would provide iron in significant amounts. Therefore, this advance, this new process could, it sounds like, help reduce the high incidence of anemia in the world's population due to a deficiency of iron in the diet. Now, that conclusion is not proven because what if this is way too expensive to possibly administer around the world? Or what if anemia is growing faster than the rate that we could possibly get this fortified salt out to the people who need it? Or I could come up with like a thousand objections to that argument. Yeah. Who knows? Right. Yeah. But the first sentence is a premise. The third sentence is actually two premises separated by that comma and. Yep. And the second sentence is the conclusion of the argument. 100%. Okay. The question says, which one of the following most accurately describes the role played in the argument by the statement that people consume salt in quantities that would provide iron in significant amounts? It's a premise, and I knew it was a premise when I read it. Yep. This argument has three premises and a conclusion. I'm going into these answers looking for it's a premise of the argument. Okay. A, it is the conclusion of the argument. No, it's not. It's the premise of the argument. It's the support that's used in favor of the conclusion. It's not the conclusion itself. Yep. B, it provides support for the conclusion of the argument. That's a, that's the definition of a premise. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Yes. That's the answer. Yep. C, it is a claim that the argument is directed against. No, it's a claim that the argument uses to support its own conclusion. It's definitely not attacking its own premise. <laughs> its own conclusion, I guess. Yeah, but anyway, no. It's yeah. Not. Okay. D, it qualifies the conclusion of the argument. Qualifies means limits. And that's uh, important, actually, for listeners, LSAT students. You should know that qualifies means limits or restricts somehow. And uh, no, that that does not restrict the conclusion in any way. It's a it's a supporting premise for their conclusion. E, it illustrates a principle that underlies the argument. Uh, e is that is a kind of a weird another way of of describing something that could be a premise of the argument. But B is so it's like, look, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> Uh, sorry, it's probably the answer is what I meant to say. If it seems too good to be true, it's probably the answer. I went into the answers looking for it's a premise of the argument. B says it's a premise of the argument. What is E now? It illustrates a principle that underlies the argument. So, OK, so the illustration would be people consume salt in quantities that would provide iron in significant amounts. And that's meant to illustrate what principle now? A principle? Yeah, like a, a general rule of thumb or something like that? The general like rule of thumb would have to be like people eat a lot or something like that, right? Like people consume a lot of things that enhance food and flavor or something like yeah. that would be almost, a principle underlying. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, but that's not that's just not what they did. And they they were not relying on any such principle. They were saying it is a fact that people consume salt in quantities that would provide iron in significant amounts. They're not trying to rely on anything broader at all. They're just trying to get you to take that fact and then go, oh, so therefore maybe this new process is going to help us alleviate anemia in the world's population. My answer is B. Yes. B is correct. Um, the student's question is, why is the part where it says people consume salt in quantities that would provide iron in significant amounts, not the conclusion? And which part in the section is the conclusion then? Hmm. So they must, that really sounds like they think the last claim made it in a well, passage is the conclusion. I, because I think that that's like really the novice thing to do is to think, oh, the part that comes last is the conclusion. My yeah. seventh grade teacher told me to write paragraphs in this way, you know, or whatever it is where, sure, maybe it is better to organize your argument. I would probably state my conclusion first and my conclusion last, <laughs> but the last thing does not have to be the conclusion. And frequently on the LSAT, they're going to bury the conclusion smack in the middle like they did here. Yeah. The reason why people consume salt in quantities that would provide iron in significant amounts is not the conclusion is because there is no evidence provided to support that claim. Yeah. No, none of those other claims, right? This new process, does the new process help you believe that people consume salt in quantities that would provide iron in significant amounts if the new process were adopted? No, the new the fact that there is this new process doesn't support the idea that people consume salt in quantities that would provide iron in significant amounts. Yeah. Um, the closest thing might be that salt is used as a, as a preservative for food and flavor all over the globe. But all that's saying is that everyone uses it. It's not saying that they use it in significant amounts. Right. To know that they need it in significant amounts, you'd need to have some piece of evidence that says, oh, most people put salt on their breakfast, lunch, and dinner, yep. and they use a lot of it. And then you're like, oh, so maybe they consume it in significant amounts. But we never saw any of that. So. Yeah, yep. not, a, not a conclusion. Cool. Is that that? That's that. Thanks for those questions, Abigail. You know, Hopefully they'll be helpful. Broadly, I think, I, I think there's three ways that you could identify the conclusion of the argument. Or there's three different, at least three different tools that I have in my tool belt that I'm thinking about when I'm trying to identify the conclusion of the argument. The first is, if they say something that sounds unlikely to me or that sounds, oh, sorry, if they say something that seems arguable, let's put it that way, mm -hmm. then I, I don't know that that's the conclusion, but I, my ears do perk up, right? If they're attacking somebody, if they're saying that something is good, if they're saying that something is bad, or if they're making a prediction about the future, then I'm going to go, how do you know that? What's your definition of good? What's your definition of bad? How can you predict the future? And I start asking all of these aggressive, controversial kind of questions. By doing that, I'm honing in on, sorry, I'm homing in on whether that's the conclusion of the argument. Yep. It's a prediction. That's what it is. Yeah, making a prediction. But yeah, it's like, it's the smell test kind of. It's like, wait, what now? Bertolt Brecht did not make successful dramas? Yeah. How do you know that? Yeah. Second thing is 
are they using keywords? This is where people like novices or people who took like one shitty LSAT class, they tend to want to go to keywords. They're looking for thus and therefore. And so those are all things that introduce a conclusion or they're looking for um, because or since or, uh, or for. These are words that can introduce premises and they're looking only at those guideposts and trying to sort out what's the conclusion and what's evidence. That works sometimes, but if it's your only tool, you're going to be in real trouble because on many of these arguments, they're not going to use any of those keywords at all. And that's what we had today (laughs) was, uh, you know, they're, they're just not giving you those guideposts. And if you, if you can't see the guideposts, then you got to get there another way. And my third thing is real simply. Some of what they gave you is meant to be evidence and some of what they gave you is meant to be the conclusion. So you kind of have to reorder the things in your head to think about, well, which one of these statements would be good support for one other of the statements? And you just kind of rearrange it in your head a little bit. For me, it can be useful to say because of and then you read one of the sentences and then I say, therefore, and then I read the the candidate conclusion. Like, I think this might be the conclusion therefore. And I, I read that, that statement. And And if if it it makes sense, yeah, if it makes sense in that order, then I go, Oh, I see. They meant to use this evidence to support this conclusion. Yeah. Again, three things. One skepticism about value judgments or predictions about the future or anything that just seems like, wait, how do you know that? Yep. Two, look for those keywords. If they're there, They can be helpful. Three, and this is ultimately really what matters. Take all of the statement combined. Look at all the different pieces of it. The evidence was meant to support one of those claims. And if you can juggle it around and rearrange it, I'm not saying that they're going to prove their case. But they are going to try to make a case and it would only really make sense in one order. It would not make sense in any other order. And so the thing that makes sense after the therefore would be the conclusion of the argument. Anything to add to that or subtract? Yeah, well, no, I I agree with everything you said. The one thing I want to expand on, and I think is problematic for people, is when it comes to using those key words, people need to understand everything that they do, those keywords tell them, and everything that those keywords don't tell them. I think that's where people get into a lot of problem, right? So for example, they see the word thus. They know enough to know that that's introducing a conclusion, but they wrongly assume that that's got to be the main conclusion. Or that it has to be immediately followed by the conclusion, right? Because we see weird constructions sometimes that are going to be like, thus, comma, because X, Y, Z, comma, and then they'll say their conclusion. Yeah. I mean, there it's interesting because there is some definitive stuff you can glean from those keywords. The test writers don't say therefore after presenting, they must have presented some evidence before that. You can't start a, a reading a logical reasoning passage with Therefore, Therefore. (laughs) that's interesting. Yeah. So, but that's only, I guess that shows you how kind of fungible the, or how, 
how unnecessary those words are. Because mm -hmm. I've said for a long time, well, you can present the elements of an argument in any order and it doesn't affect the logic of the argument. Mm -hmm. But that mm -hmm. is a that is a point where, no, you wouldn't be able to lift that question. If, if the conclusion actually did use the word therefore. Then you would not be able to just rearrange that and put it in the first sentence of the argument. You'd actually you, but you could take that sentence and slap it up there as the first sentence of the argument. You just remove the therefore. You would remove it. So these words are, I agree, 100 percent not necessary, but they are helpful. Yeah. As long as you understand them. Exactly. And that is, okay, it's telling me that the author is trying to conclude something from something else. But I don't know whether that's the main conclusion or an intermediate conclusion on the basis of that word alone. And that's where people yeah. take the words too far. And that's a problem. They need to then rely on that other skill that you were talking about. And that is just understanding how do these sentences relate to each other? And do I think this is ultimately being used as evidence for something else or is it the end all be all? Is it the main conclusion? Maybe a hiking analogy. Mm. Uh, if you're going to go any kind of backcountry wilderness hiking at all, uh, following trails and trail markers is great, but it's good to have some other ways of following the trail. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, what if it's half a mile in between tiny little tags that they've put up on the tree to try to mark the trail? Yeah. You, you got to have other other tools. Um, so one of the tools would be watching the trail itself, right? Mm -hmm. Footprints like worn over time, fellow travelers. OK, so that helps me get from guidepost to guidepost. What if there's snow? I've been out on the trail before with uh, Zeta, you know, Zeta, Wade's dog. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> like Zeta can follow the trail even when the snow has completely covered the trail. Yeah. And she's got, you know, this other scent to get where she's going, I assume it's kind of a stretched or stupid uh, <laughs> analogy. But the point is, you know, if I was just relying on the therefores and the so's, it would be like going out into the woods, just like, well, oh, they're going to tell me they're going to give me all the all the markers. <laughs> but no, yeah. there's circumstances where they're not. And you're going to definitely limit your, uh, you know, the top of your range. I think this is why we end up getting people you know, um, 17 or 27 points improvement instead of seven points improvement, because those strategies that that big, bloated, bad prep companies <laughs> teach you when they're giving you their seven point guarantee mm. is going to be things like read the question first, find out that it's a conclusion question, and then just go straight into the answer choices looking for keywords. Yep. Right. Well, where would that have gotten you on the second question we did today was a conclusion question. If we had read that and then gone into the argument looking for keywords, we would have completely wasted our time because there are no keywords. Yeah. And it also would have been a bad strategy in the first question that we did about Bertolt Brecht, because we would read that and we would go, the conclusion of the actor's argument can be properly drawn if which one of the following is assumed. Again, if we went into the argument looking for keywords to identify where the conclusion of the argument is, because that's what we're being asked to prove, we're just not going to find it. So there's this, it's a limitation, I think, of, of that strategy. Their, you know, their conclusion strategies of just like, oh, look for keywords. Yeah. And it's a, I think it's a, 
another reason why reading the question first is just a waste of time on LSAT logical reasoning, right? If I read, contrast those two, right? If I read the question first here, I get the conclusion of the actor's argument. I've never heard of an actor. What actor? There's an actor making an argument? Yeah. The conclusion can be properly drawn if which one of the following is assumed. And I start thinking about sufficient assumption questions, blah, blah, blah. I don't know anything about the argument. Yeah. Then I read the first sentence. Actor, Bertolt Brecht's plays are not genuinely successful dramas. And if I'm not naturally, like if I'm not being skeptical anyway, then I think I'm just more inclined to like read the second sentence, read the third sentence. I'm just kind of piling it all in there. And then I'm going to start, okay, so it's a, it's a sufficient assumption question. So I'm going to try to sort it out, but <laughs> it's so much easier, I think, to do it the other way around, which is like, we knew we read that, we read that first sentence and we went, oh, why are you attacking Bertolt Brecht? Yeah. Is that the conclusion of your argument? And it's just like, we're immediately already on it. Yeah. Um, your mileage may vary, but I strongly recommend you to try it our way if you have not already, because it just I think it's going to make the LSAT fun and easy. Agreed. OK, um, well, that was a useful discussion, I thought, about conclusions. We have an email here from uh, Zachary. You want to read it? Yeah, the subject is good at reading comprehension, but bad at logical reasoning. Hello, Ben and Nathan. I joined LSAT Demon Live about a week ago. I had done very little studying for the LSAT prior to joining. My reading comprehension score is naturally high. Good. I am able to complete the level five passages and questions with essentially 100% accuracy in around 12 minutes. Essentially 100%. Hmm. Okay. I'm also confused by the 12 minutes because you don't have 12 minutes per passage, but... Um, I'm glad you're accurate on the ones you do yep. missing only the occasional, especially difficult question. However, my logical reasoning is suspect. I read the LR questions multiple times and still have no idea what is going on. Um, I have a theory already. This, who is this? Zachary might be reading too fast. You know, yeah. the people who read the whole lot the yep. passage and then they read it again. It's like, whoa. How about you reread the sentence that you didn't understand? Yeah. And I find myself it. like, get, I, I find myself interrupting people and going, can you read that with a little like emotion? Yeah. Can you yeah. wake up a little bit? Because when I'm reading these arguments, you know, again, an actor says Bertolt Brecht's plays are not successful, not genuinely successful dramas. And I stop right there and I go, wait a second. Uh, how do you know? What's your authority? You're some yeah. actor. You're attacking Bertolt Brecht yeah. saying that the plays are not genuinely successful. How the hell do you know that? And it's that like interaction with the speaker that really like lights things up. I, I do have a feeling I'm with you, Ben. I think that Zachary would have already read that whole argument and maybe even the question. Mm -hmm. And now he's got to reread the argument and the question and reread the argument <laughs> instead of just like taking it in smaller bites. Yeah. And if he, he took it in smaller bites, his reading comp would probably be doing even better. Yep. Not missing the especially difficult question and potentially not taking 12 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So Zachary continues. I have a few questions based on this one. Is this a common issue for people? 
reading comp being easy and LR being difficult? If not, then why does it, if anything, oh, what does it, if anything, signal to you? Well, we already told you what we're suspecting here. And I, I think it actually makes sense because um, if you're going a little too fast in reading comp, you can get away with that on some level because it's less about eh, what was wrong with that reasoning. It's more just what was the reasoning. Whereas in logical reasoning, it's all about what's wrong with the reasoning. So you have to understand yeah. the reasoning first. And then second, you have to decide what you think about it. In reading comp, you can get away with that a little bit, although not necessarily. I mean, if you're taking 12 minutes on a passage, you're not finishing the section. So you are probably going to benefit from also being critical with the reading comp passage, not because they're going to ask you that many questions about the reasoning or why the reasoning is flawed, but because when you engage on that level, you remember things a lot more. Yeah. And I would say that it's, it's not a common issue, but it's not uncommon either. I mean, like probably half the people are better at reading comp than at logical reasoning. Yeah. But to well, some degree, and, right? Yeah. And that's where they start, right? People tend to take a diagnostic right. and reading comp could right. improve for sure, but it's better than their LR and then well, better than their games. I would go a step further. I've never seen anybody who is able to ace that RC who can't eventually also ace the LR. I mean, like there's just no reason why. If you can do the RC, then you can process a certain amount of information in a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. Well, and we don't really know whether what Zachary's doing on timed sections. So I, maybe that's not the case. I mean, Zachary, you are doing, you know, you're reporting to us at least a real weird metric, which is 12 minutes on level five passages. Yeah. Okay. How are you doing on timed sections? That's what I really care about. Yeah. But if you're doing well on timed sections of RC, then you're, you, there's no reason why you can't also do well on LR. We just have to figure out what you're doing weird and different. Yeah. Zachary then says, should I be reading the two sections in different ways? Does it not make sense to me? Oh, sorry. It does not make sense to me that my ability on each would be so polarized. Thanks, Zachary. Yeah. I think you actually just need to read both better, both more yeah. on a sentence by sentence level. Reading comp will improve and LR will jump more yeah. and catch up. Also, take what you're good at with reading comp and start using those skills in logical reasoning. We have a class in LSAT Demon Live, which Zachary's a subscriber to. I hope you've been looking out for Eric's cross-training classes, Zachary, because he rotates through them, trying to encourage people to take their, their strengths and apply those strengths in weaker areas. So Eric, uh, every so often does a class about, hey, you're good at RC, but you're bad at LR. Here are some techniques that might help you translate one over to the other. Yeah. It's not a completely different game. Absolutely not. Like Zachary thinks he should be doing something wildly different on LR than what he's doing on RC. And I, I, I don't think that's the case at all. I, I do try to read reading comprehension passages as if they are logical reasoning arguments, you know, I'm going to be skeptical and engaged. Yep. Um, many, many logical reasoning questions are just must be true questions. And reading comp is essentially all must be true questions. Essentially all. Essentially, essentially 100%. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> good. I'm glad you called me out on that. Um, <laughs> you know, but it is, it's like, it's like 95% or something like that uh, yeah. must be trues, 
Well, LR yeah. is like 50% must be trues or must be true ish questions. Yeah. So if you're good at answering question questions based on the record, yep. which is what you're doing in RC, then that translates directly to half of the LR questions. Maybe the thing that Zachary's missing is that he's just not really doing strength and weekend assumption. You know, he's not he, he's not doing the argumentative ones and uh, well enough on mm -hmm. LR. But I don't yeah. know, Zach, we'd have to come talk to us in class, really, because you're you're a live subscriber. So I'm sure we can sort this out for you. Yeah. Thanks for writing in. Let's see. We got a couple ask button questions about comparative reading comp passages. You want to read number one here? Number one, would you ever recommend the quote, read passage A, try to answer as many questions as possible, then read passage B and finish the questions strategy for comparative passages? I have heard slash tried this strategy multiple times, and I haven't seen a discernible difference between it and reading both passages straight through. What do you think about that strategy, Ben? I don't like that strategy, and I want to step back and make sure that people understand the big picture here. And that is that reading comp passages, even not the ones that aren't comparative are 15, 16 sentences. We're not yeah. talking about a ton of information here. And so, um, comparative passages are when you combine them together about the same length, uh, but each one is short, just read it, uh, read both of them and understand them. It's not that much to ask, but once you do, you're the boss and you can answer whatever question they throw out at you uh, in any order. Like, I, I just hate this idea of trying to read the first passage, then scrambling to find the questions that have to do with the first yeah. passage and then discovering, oh, wait, this actually does depend on the second passage for this <laughs> right. particular question. Like, just yeah. be the boss of those two passages and then go be the boss of the answers that you then pick. Yeah, I like that. I had something I was going to say on the same lines, but I lost my train of thought. I, I mm. also think that it's a very bad strategy. I I agree. Like read passage A and then stop and make and sure that you're it. the boss of passage A. Make yeah. sure that you really understand what's there. But then, yeah, there's no point in going and answering questions that are because, boy, you're going to skim. Oh, here's my idea that I was coming back to. Yeah. So first of all, you're going to skim all the questions, which is a waste of time. Yep. Second, and this is even worse, you're going to start reading wrong answers before you've even read passage B. Those wrong answers can infect your understanding of both passage A and passage B. Like the record is the record. You should start with the record, not yeah. the bullshit arguments that are going to be made about the record or like throw, you know, the, the answers are like, I'm imagining a, um, a, a team throwing all their ideas up against the wall, like a brainstorming session almost. Yeah. Right. And 80% yeah. of those ideas are complete bullshit. Yep. So why are you going to go into the questions that are about passage a so that you can wade through all of these dumb, weird ideas that misunderstand passage a. They're all close though, right? They're all, and they're like, all close they enough. Like they all use all the words from passage a just <laughs> blend it up into this gross, you know, nonsensical concoction. Yeah. And then go in and try to read passage B and then answer questions that are about both passage A and passage B. Now that you've been like infected with all of these weird ideas about passage A, eh, 
but and no. you're going to answer the questions that are just about passage B. I mean, how many <laughs> questions are we even talking about here? Two. Yeah. Yeah. I. Okay. So that's a turd. Like, don't do that strategy. I've. I haven't. I don't know anybody who thinks that that's a good strategy. Yeah. Number two. Hi, when reading through my reading comp section, I always leave the comparative reading passages for last after I have attempted to finish single passages. That being said, I don't ever finish all three single passages during the timed section. So I guess this student is saying they never have done the comparative reading then during a timed section because there's only one comparative reading passage. Should I keep focusing on that process or should I do the passages in order? Thank you. Yeah, do them in order. You're giving too much respect to the comparative passages. You are living with the assumption that somehow they are harder when in fact it's probably based on a small sample size that's self-fulfilling. You go into it thinking, oh, this is going to be hard. It's going to make it harder. Just do the passages in order and eventually you'll be doing all four of them. But do the best you can on the ones you get to. And by the way, even when you don't get to a passage in your section, do it. The next time you come back to studying for the LSAT, you didn't finish a, a passage in a section. Great. Go do it. Yeah, there's no reason not to do it. Just untimed and just focus on accuracy. Yeah. Anytime you skip questions, you're increasing the average difficulty of the questions that you are going to attempt. Because the questions get harder progressively as we go deeper into the section. It's not linear, but on average the passages at the end of the section are harder than the passages at the beginning of the section. So it's tragic here. If this student is, you know, the first passage is comparative and you're skipping it. Yeah. I mean, those questions were probably just like freebies. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because now you're going to try to do passage two, three and four, which very likely is the hardest passage. And you're going to run out of time before you ever get to come back and answer the comparative passage, which might have been easy. And I would say the same thing if the comparative passage was the second or the third, just on average, anytime you skip passage one, two or three, you're probably going to a harder passage. So I hate that strategy. It's like the people I was talking in class yesterday to somebody who um, skips parallel reasoning questions on LR. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, man. I agree that like this number 22 parallel reasoning question could be really hard, but <laughs> number two, if it's a parallel reasoning question or number 12, if it's a parallel reasoning question, those can be some of the very easiest questions where it's like, there's only one answer that's even close to correct. Yeah. And it's, it's a shame when people like, they, you know, oh, they get intimidated by that. And then they like skip because if you skip once, like, all right. But if you start skipping a couple times, then now it's like, OK, so on average, you're skipping the earlier, easier ones so that you can have time to do the harder ones. And that, you know, when you do get to number 22, it might not be parallel reasoning, but it could be a really, really difficult <laughs> question of any other type that you're going to now spend time on because you were intimidated by the, you know, number five, easy parallel reasoning question. So yeah. don't skip parallel reasoning questions on LR instead, learn how to do them. Don't skip comparative reading. A lot of people like comparative reading the best, by the way. Yeah. Because it's, it's, more, it's closer to LR. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so a couple of bad strategies. I'm glad we had uh, had time to debunk those. Want to read this email from uh, Chance? Yeah. Hey, Ben and Nathan. During the summer, I drive 50 hours a week for work, during which I spend a lot of time listening to Thinking LSAT and listening to your online courses. Unfortunately, I came across LSAT Demon after already enrolling in another prep company's courses. The classes are terrible, and I've tried to get a refund with no success. Is there any way y'all would advise people on how to study when they can only listen? Also, my cold diagnostic was a 149, but after six months of studying, I can't seem to crack any higher than a 153. After listening, I feel like a 149 is a good score, but why can't I crank it higher? Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's a bummer. Um, I Whenever I think about this, I think of Sam Harris's and comment that you can have good information, you can have no information, and you can have bad information, and bad information is worse in a lot of cases than no information. Yeah. And I wonder if that's what's happened here. I don't know what you've been doing for six months, but if you've been pick, trying to implement bad strategies, that actually hurts you. So you're making progress on some level, but then being... Uh, held back or really hurt in other ways. And so maybe you'd be higher by now. You asked this other prep company for a refund and they would not immediately offer it to you. Did you raise a fuss? Did you ask to speak to a manager? Did you tell them why their stuff is so bad and how you're never going to stop talking about how bad it is? Uh, if they don't give you a refund, I bet you could talk them into a refund is what I'm telling you chance. Even if you can't, you should definitely stop going to those classes because as Ben said, that bad information is worse than no information at all. You say you're listening to our online courses. So listening to thinking LSAT and then also, I guess, an LSAT demon subscriber. Hmm. Um, but doing, I'm assuming is chance a truck driver drive 50 hours a week i'm imagining like uh sylvester stallone in over the top did you ever see that movie i did not that was a real bad 80s movie uh where sylvester stallone was a uh like professional arm wrestler but he was also a truck driver <laughs> and so he had rigged up in his truck <laughs> He had like a weight pulley system and he oh would my just drive gosh. miles Oh, wait, I feel like I've seen like... that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's like a meme and or then, something. Yeah. In the matches, he would, his move was turning his hat around backward before he goes, oh my God. The, before he goes for the, the slam. Um, yeah. Anyway, so Chance is doing that except for uh, LSAT studying as he goes hmm. down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What wow. do you think? I... I we have heard a lot of people say that just by listening to Thinking LSAT, they have improved their LSAT a lot. Yeah, I'm sorry about the the lost money. I agree with you, Nathan. Chance should keep trying. It's a great skill to develop. A lawyer, I'm just saying a lawyer would get a refund. Yeah. But at some time, at some point, yes, I was to cut your losses, right? And just say, okay, my time is worth more than haggling this. And your time is definitely worth more than going to these bad classes. Like you should just, yeah. even if they're not giving you your money back, you have to say, okay, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. Uh, you have to look forward to the future too, Chase, or Chase, Chance. Um, we have all made a ton of financial decisions that we wish we would not have made. Yet 
what can you do at this point in time? You can look forward and say, okay, what am I going to do going forward? Maybe you can't get the demon now, but you could use demon free as much as possible. And then maybe uh, in a month or two, get basic. Just what are you going to do going forward? Well, also, how about this? What about a paralegal who works 60 hours a week? How do they study for the LSAT? Well, I mean, Chance is saying I drive 50 hours a week, so therefore I can only listen. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Really? Because some of your competitors work 50 hours a week or more in a law office where they don't listen to thinking LSAT all day. (laughs) Other people work in law offices and do listen to thinking LSAT all day, (laughs) (laughs) which I love. But there's there's this other group of people who are like, no, I have very serious commitments and I still am going to study for the LSAT. Yeah. Which would bring me back to my, you know, one hour a day recommendation. We have a a lesson early on in the demon. It's a public blog post that you can read. If you just Google one hour LSAT, I think you'll find it. And there's a, a, a plan for, Hey, here's how I would spend one hour a day. So, you know, 50 hours a week, that's 10 hours a day, five days a week. So you still have Saturday and Sunday. And even if you are driving truck for a 10 hour work day, Okay, that's a long day. That's 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Maybe you studied an hour, though, on your lunch break. Yeah. Or before work or after work might be a little tough. But, you know, can you find that high quality one hour a day? And if you can find a high quality one hour a day and you do it in the demon. I am very confident that you're going to be improving. Yeah. Unfortunate, whatever chance has done for six months, you know, six months, Ben went from 149 to 153. Yeah, that sucks. Like, even if you spent two grand on this class that you don't like, that's nowhere near as bad of an of an investment as the six months that you've invested. Yeah. Without making any progress. So you you definitely need to do something um, significantly different with your study time. Yep. Next email. This is from Peyton. Subject is LSAC GPA. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I was wondering what the difference is between degree, summary GPA, and cumulative GPA on the LSAC summary report. On my report, it says my degree or summary GPA is 4.27, but my cumulative GPA says 4.17. What is the difference between the two and which one is my official LSAC weighted GPA? I think your degree... GPA is just what it says on your transcript. Does one of those numbers match what it says on your transcript? Mm. If it does, that's the unofficial number, (laughs) right? Because LSAC is going to do some magical manipulations of your undergraduate grades to equalize for uh, things like how does your school deal with it if you retake a class and get a higher grade? So like maybe what happened here, Peyton, is you took a class and got a B, you retook that class and you got an A plus. Mm-hmm. On your transcript, your school might not count the B, but LSAC is always going to count both. And that's why I think what happened here is that your official cumulative GPA is 4.17. Am I right? I wish I knew the answer. More definitively. <laughs> Listeners... <clears throat> Excuse me, listeners, you can please write in and correct us uh, on that. But I'm I, I, you know, the trick that won't fail is if you match it to your transcript, 
If there's a number that matches the number on your transcript, then that is not going to be the official number. The other number is the one that LSAC has massaged. Um, and you, it could go up, could go down here. It looks like you went down, which is a bummer, but, uh, 4.17 is still an awful good UGPA. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that I think that's your official weighted GPA. I would bet money on it, but yep, you can write us in or listeners can write us in and tell us otherwise. Yeah, please do. This next one is from anonymous. The subject is personal statement. I made an honest mistake at 17 years old and got arrested. It was a misdemeanor and my records were sealed. That situation helped me understand why I wanted to go to law school. Oh, God. In your opinion, would this story be a good personal statement or would I be shooting myself in the foot? Thank you. I say shooting yourself in the foot. I don't I don't I don't want to hear about what happened when you were 17. I definitely don't want you to be emphasizing you getting arrested in your personal statement. And then explaining that that's why you now want to go to law school. Jeez. I, I don't give a shit very much why you want to go to law school, honestly. Like half of the applicants have real na naive ideas about why they want to go to law school anyway. And you talking about what you want to do. It's like in some cases it might make sense to, to make a credible case for like, well, because of this, I'm going to do this. But it would be tying it to your career or your education or your professional training in some way, not something that happened to you or your family. I just have never liked one of these personal statements. That's about a legal issue that happened to you or your family. It sounds naive, you know, it's like I made an honest mistake and got arrested. What do you think that looks like? By the way, an honest mistake that gets yeah, you arrested. <laughs> What is, what does that mean? And you're just, uh, it's not going to come across the way you think it's going to come across. I held the old man's suitcase for him and it turns out it was full of cocaine. <laughs> you know, something <laughs> like that. What? Like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Honest um, mistake, officer. Well, and then like the story from there would proceed in a really bad direction too, because it Ugh. would be like, and then I was shafted by the system or whatever, you know, like this, this cop didn't stay within his purview and blah, blah, blah. And then that's why I'm fired up to be a defense attorney or whatever. It's like, okay, you're, I don't know. Yeah. I think the, the real obvious, the real obvious mistake you would be making here is that you would be spending a lot of time talking about your arrest. Yeah. Like what if the personal statement is the very first thing they read, you know, and they look at your application and they're just personal statement right up front, which why wouldn't they, by the way? Yeah. I mean, LSAT and GPA obviously, but then it's like, okay, let's read this personal statement and see what this person is about. I made an honest mistake at 17 years old and got arrested. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you're leading with an, a fact that can't possibly be good for you. Yeah. Or maybe it can be good for you on balance, but you're going to have to make a convoluted case in order to get the listener or the reader to, to reach that conclusion. Right. It's just like, you're, you're already pushing uphill. Yep why would you start yourself in so much of a hole? Why wouldn't you talk about your career achievements, academic achievements, literally anything else than you getting arrested? 
<laughs> you know those uh I, I don't see these very often, but shorts or whatever it is, these like these eight second clips of whatever. And sometimes they have to say like wait for it. <laughs> I just they're just admitting that it's starting off boring and bad, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't watch uh YouTube shorts the way uh the Olsen boys do. So I know I'm not familiar with that, but yeah, I agree. Well, it's, it's sad to admit that I've seen enough to actually see that statement, but <laughs> as soon as I see that, I'm like, okay, yeah, cause this is stupid. And thankfully I don't watch them, um, beyond, Hey dad, come look at this. But it <laughs> makes me think of that. Cause it's like, okay, you're like, wait for it, wait for it. It's going to be great. I promise you. And yeah, it's now worse just, than that though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's even worse than that because it's, it's not wait for it. It's I got arrested. <laughs> oh, but wait for it though. Cause it's actually a really good, <laughs> I'm going to, I have reasons for you this. Yeah. You know, and it just, yeah, I think you are definitely shooting yourself in the foot. I would write about literally anything else in your personal statement. Also, you think that your records were sealed. That may or may not mean that they're actually sealed you were arrested. I think they're going to ask you questions on your application. Were you ever arrested? And you need to probably call your state bar and find out whether you actually have to disclose these things or not. Yeah. But you probably should err on the side of over disclosing because of character and fitness issues. Uh, three years, four years from now, when you try to get barred in your state, you need to have answered all these questions in your law school application. Truthfully, and so, yeah, my guess is you're probably going to have to disclose this, but you're going to do that in an addendum that explains. And yeah, in your addendum, if if you want to, <laughs> I don't know, I'd be real careful. I would try to just take the blame and say you've moved on. Yeah. But I suppose there could be some connection there in that addendum. I just wouldn't be ever trying to make that connection in a personal statement because Hopefully you have positive, unequivocally positive uh, things that you could emphasize instead. Yep. Apparently you did an episode on the Demon Daily uh, podcast with Brandon. Okay. Episode yep, 340. A long time called, ago. But yeah, it's called Your Personal Statement is Your Sales Pitch. And we will link that in the, in the show notes. You know, consider um, like people uh, swiping. Yeah. Uh, in tender or whatever <laughs> they're making flash decisions yep. yes or no yep and it's going to be like mostly no's and so you know when the pitch starts off i made an honest mistake at 17 years old that's already not great <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you made an honest mistake what okay so you're you're making a mistake also you're 17 and got arrested okay bye <laughs> like just yeah. next yeah like if you were unless your numbers are so astronomically amazing that they have to grapple with you, they're already trying to find out ways to filter out people. Yeah. So don't give them that filter. Cool. This next one is from Christian. The subject is waiving the ability of letters of recommendation. Sorry. Yeah. Ability to view letters of recommendation. Yeah. yeah. Okay, is it recommended to waive the ability to view letters of recommendation? LSAC's website encourages applicants to waive the right, but I'm hesitant to do so. 
If it is recommended, would it be inappropriate to ask references to let me review their letter before they submit? Um, yeah, you just need to waive <laughs> this ability. You need to say, it's okay, I don't need to see it. And you don't need to ask for the letter from your reviewer. If you feel the need to ask for the letter to make sure it's legit or good or solid, then you're asking the wrong person. Yeah. Have a conversation with them and make sure that they know what you're doing and make sure that they're enthusiastically interested in writing you this letter of recommendation. This is a test to see if you've got two people in your professional life or academic slash professional life who are going to vouch for you and do you yeah. this solid and write nice things about you. And if you don't waive the ability to view the letters of recommendation, then the schools are going to see that, that you have not waived that right. And if mm -hmm. you haven't waived that right, then the school might start thinking, oh, I wonder if they are, you know, they were worried that this reviewer was going to say something bad about them. And that's why they didn't waive the right. Yeah. As far as asking recommenders to, to review the letter before they <laughs> submit, I mean, that's an insult to yep. your referrer. Yep. In many cases, they're going to offer. And if they offer, yeah, fine. But you yeah. saying, write me a letter of recommendation. Also, I want to see it before you submit it. Yeah. Hard to, hard to do that. So yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> choose better recommenders, I think is our advice. Yeah. Last one okay. is from Jake says, taking yeah. your advice to heart, but curious about soft factors. Howdy, Ben and Nathan. I'm new to the demon. And after a week of practicing an hour a day, I feel confident I can hit my goal of 175. Today was my first diagnostic, a 152, which I know you all say not to take too much stock in, but it still felt nice. It should feel nice. 152 as a diagnostic is an excellent starting score. Yeah, I would encourage you to shoot for something in the 170s. At your recommendation, I have also started reaching out to my undergrad to see if I can change anything about my abysmal 3.1 GPA. Okay, good. Maybe that works out. Maybe it doesn't, but good ask. My question is about soft factors. If I am unable to get my score up to where I want it, will law schools look favorably on the fact that I moved to Reno from Michigan to work as a cowboy? Hmm. I graduated feeling as though I didn't take my academics seriously enough. And so to prove to myself I can grind, I took a job in manual labor to experience hard freaking work. Is this a unique strength of my application or just another thing on a resume? Will law schools even believe my motivations? I guess I could also see them genuinely not caring. Any advice is appreciated. Thanks, y'all. Jake. <laughs> well, I think it's it's like what we say for all soft factors. There are some soft factors out there that can help you. I think, you know, it's great that you did hard work in a way that a lot of people these days don't do. But it's still just a soft factor. At the end of the day, you got to come up with the numbers and then use these factors to distinguish yourself amongst other people who have similar numbers. 
Yep. Uh, you know, cowboy is going to be a unique, that's a unique thing on your application. Yep. Right. Like you could build a brand referring back to that. Um, you know, your personal statement is your sales pitch. You could definitely write a kick-ass cowboy personal statement because they're going to read that and they're going to go, Oh shit, this guy has a totally unique life experience. Like we've never had a cowboy in our law school before. Yeah. That's a rare, uh, <laughs> breed to apply to law school. But well, the thing I'm worried about is to prove if this sentence ends up in the personal statement, then I'm, I'm already not liking it. Okay. I graduated feeling as though I didn't take my academics seriously enough. Your 3.1 GPA already told us that, right? We don't need you editorializing acknowledging that you didn't take it seriously enough. The law school is like, yeah, you have a 3.1. <laughs> You're going to drag down our numbers if we admit you. Yep. We already know that you did not take your academics seriously enough. Yeah. And then this. So to prove myself, to prove to myself, I can grind. I took a job in manual labor. Yeah. You want to know what a skeptic is going to say? A skeptic's going to say you had a 3.1. You couldn't find a good job. You had to take a manual labor job. Why are you trying to like overly sell me on this idea that you're doing it as some personal challenge to yourself? Well, and the further skeptics going to say there are a lot of people who can crush it in manual labor, but not here in law school. That's not to say that like having manual labor on your resume or in your story can be really good as part of your background. Yeah. But it needs to be like, you know, if I it doesn't about, translate, it doesn't mean, oh, now I'm going to get four point Right. Yeah. So, I like to know. I think that they like it when they see that people have done jobs like just real work. Doesn't really matter what it is, but just anything that's like a real job. Yeah. And cowboy is going to qualify for real job. They're, you know, they're going to go, oh, okay, you worked hard. You did well at this. That's great. But like, yeah. I personally challenged myself to be a cowboy so that I could do hard freaking work. Therefore, law school. That's a huge stretch. Yeah. Like, what's the brand you're trying to build there? So instead of stretching for that weird connection of instead i would just talk about you being successful as a cowboy and let them reach whatever inferences they want to reach yeah you're going to need a high lsat in order to have a credible law school case with that gpa and your personal statement may not even matter at all i mean it's like they're i think they're reading it to check to make sure you're not crazy and make sure you don't disclose anything that would keep you out <laughs> I just don't think the editorializing about what this cowboy job means is nearly as powerful as show yourself doing that job and succeeding at it. Yeah. Thanks, Jake. BLSAT famous. Please ask us questions or share news with us at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. You can also check out our other podcast, Elsa Demon Daily. That was episode 408 of the Thinking Elsa podcast. Thanks y'all, all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.